You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, uh, you'll know that over the the past handful of months, we've been in a a sermon series called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, where we are seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going back to the Old Testament and we're looking at uh, narratives and poetry and wisdom literature and, and law and all of these uh, moments in the uh, Old Testament of your Bible and to see how those moments come to bear on the person and the work of Jesus and how Jesus comes to bear on those moments. So we're just all up in that part of our Bible. And today's no exception. We're there again and we're um, in, in a new passage, in another narrative in the book of Numbers 21. And you just heard it read on the screen, so you already know it's a little weird. It is a little bit weird. And I was thinking uh, this week, like, how do I, like, make it make sense for us? You know, it is such a strange passage. I was thinking, like, what, what's the dot that I can connect? And then it occurred to me, uh, this story is the Karate Kid. I don't know if you know that. Have, have you, the, uh, so, Karate Kid, we're, any 80s kids in here? We familiar with the, uh, yeah, come on. Yes. Now, let me be clear. I'm not referring to the Jaden Smith remake of Karate Kid. Nothing against Jaden, but get behind me, Satan, because this is the, this is the, I'm talking the OG Ralph Macchio, 1984, Mr. Miyagi, thank you. Okay, you guys don't get that excited when I talk about the gospel, that's fine. Uh, the, uh, the Karate Kid uh, is, uh, if you know anything about it, the basic story is uh, you, you have this kid, Daniel, he's in a new school. Uh, the bullies in the school are part of the same karate dojo and they got a thirst for blood. Daniel's landlord happens to be a retired karate master who commits to train him for this upcoming tournament, which will restore Daniel's honor among the dojo. You know, your standard karate movie. And uh, that's, that's the plot. And you remember how this goes. Daniel uh, comes over to Mr. Miyagi's house uh, for his sort of first round of training. He's, he's ready to, to get trained by the master and how to like do karate. I'm, you know, chopping some faces. I don't know what you do in karate, but maybe that's, he's, he's coming expecting that. And the guy hands him a paintbrush, right? He's like, paint my fence. He's like, what? All right. And so he goes and he paints his fence for like a week and finishes that. And he comes back and he's like, okay, now it's go time. I'm ready to learn like the kick throat thing. And, uh, and he's like, no. And he hands him a towel and he says, wax my cars. And for the next week, he's waxing like these 10 like old school roadsters. I don't know how a landlord has these 10 amazing vehicles, but that's another story. And, uh, and, and he keeps coming back and these moments keep happening. Sand the floor, do these things. And, and by the end of that little scene, he, he finally shows up at Miyagi's place and he's like, Bro, I am so done, <laughs> right? Like, you are the worst teacher. You've done nothing, right? I, I, I don't know anything right now. And, uh, and Miyagi uh, looks at him, and he goes, sand the floor. He's like, you're not hearing me. I, I'm saying you're the worst. No, I'm not going to do it. He's like, no, sand the floor. He's like, okay, all right, I'm sanding the floor. He's like, wax the car. And he starts doing the thing. Paint the house, Right? And then as he's doing this, Miyagi proceeds to scream and strike his face like any good disciple maker would. And and, and all of a sudden, though, right, Daniel's hands, they fly up, right? Wax on, blah, wax off, blah, paint the house, blah, sand the floor, blah. And, And all of a sudden, right, he's able to defend himself 
uh, against hand-to-hand combat for the first time. And it's this amazing moment for for the first time in the movie, all that irrelevant and confusing labor he'd been doing for months comes alive when applied in a new context. He realizes that those tasks, they seemed pointless, but they were actually a dress rehearsal to equip him for his future. Numbers 21. It's Numbers 21. Today, the only way that you're coming out of this message not scratching your head or like super angry at God is if you can see things like that. Where we're headed this morning and the Bible is going to feel like waxing cars for a lot of us. It's not going to make any sense. There's a weird story and like strange, unexplainable behaviors from God and and. These are the passages that you avoid when you're sharing the gospel with people, right? It's like, please don't bring up the snake thing. I don't know how to deal with that, right? But the truth is, if if we take our time here, and we're going to, if we take our time here, we're going to see that there's something bigger and more beautiful that's being shown to us. And and it feels confusing at first glance, but I, I want you to see that this is really, it's an Old Testament dress rehearsal that's equipping us for the future. That's what this passage is. It's equipping us to see the most important story in the world and the most important person in the world. That's what this passage is doing. So so, uh, why don't you get your Bible out? We're gonna be in Numbers 21, starting in verse four. And as you're turning there, um, uh, let me say, we're gonna be training our eyes to spot three things as we work through the text. Three um, truths that we can't miss this morning, if we want to understand Christianity, the seriousness of sin, the permanence of judgment, and the essence of faith. The seriousness of sin, the permanence of judgment, and the essence of faith. Let's get into it. The seriousness of sin, starting in verse four, says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, we'll stop there. Um, Right away, I feel concerned uh, for you to see something. Because one of the things that I think many of us experience when we read our Bible, especially when we read our Old Testament, is this sense of like, God's not fair. Right? Like, uh, like there's these outsized consequences for like what seem to us to be small time infractions, right? Like, uh, like take this story, for, for instance. Here is one way to read this story. If you sin, God's gonna kill you with snakes. That feels a little weird, right? It feels excessive. That doesn't match, the, the, the consequence doesn't match the infraction. It feels, like, it feels like Singapore. Do you know anything about Singapore? Do you know... In Singapore, it is illegal for you to chew gum. And if you are a tourist in Singapore and you are found with more than, I'm not making this up, more than two packs of gum on your person, you can be charged with gum smuggling, which apparently is a thing, right? Gum smuggling, and that brings with it a $5,500 fine and a year in prison for Trident, right? Ha! Small offense, 
massive penalty. It seems unfair. This is how a lot of us feel when we read the Old Testament. Some people whined and God sent snakes to kill them. That seems unfair. It seems like God is just like a hothead, right? He just kind of flies off the handle sometimes. And honestly, when we read these stories, it makes a lot of us, if we're honest, not want to trust God. We don't want to trust a God like that. It seems I don't know if I can rely on it. Man, I want you to trust him this morning. So I feel concerned. Like, is that what he's really like? Is he, is he capricious? Or are we maybe not seeing everything clearly? Now, most every time you want to solve a problem that you have with the Bible, the answer is almost always the same. Here's the best Bible study tip I could ever give you. Just slow down and notice things. Just take your time and notice things. What do the words tell us? What does the surrounding context tell us? And that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. We're going to slow down. We're going to notice. Is there anything we're missing that would color this story in a different light? Anything that would, that would maybe make sense of God's response? Okay? And I think we're going to see two things that add a level of gravitas and seriousness to our sin. Two things, I'll put it like this. Sin is blind and it's natural. Sin is blind and natural. Let me show you what I mean. What, uh, sin is blind. Okay, Th- there, is, there is a context around this set of verses. Context really matters here. This event didn't happen in a vacuum, right? There were things that went around it. Like for instance, we started reading this morning in verse four. But that implies what? There's a verses one through three. Now, what happened in verses one through three? Well, Israel was traveling through the desert and the Canaanites decided to make war on Israel. The king of Arad gathers troops and he fights against Israel and he steals some of their people even and makes them captives. He makes them as slaves. Israel in verse two, they cry out to God for help. God, will you give us victory over this army? And it says in verse three that the Lord heeded the voice of Israel, gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the very last thing that happens before we get to our scene is what? God gives Israel victory over their oppressors. That's the last thing that happens here. What a, just think, what an awesome answer to prayer. The Canaanites come, they steal our people, we cry out to God, God answers us. This is an awesome moment for the people of Israel. They cried out to him and he showed kindness. The story is preceded by kindness, but it's also followed by kindness. Well, what do I mean? Well, look at the first line of verse four, our text today. Where does verse four say they're heading to? From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the what? To the Red Sea. Anybody heard of that place? Heard of the Red Sea before? I don't know if you know this, but the Red Sea in the Old Testament, kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal to the people of Israel. What happened at the Red Sea? The Exodus, right? The parting. Like God rescuing his people from slavery, parting the waters, letting them walk through on dry ground, saving them from their oppressors. That's the moment that, that happened at the Red Sea, and that's the exact place that they're heading to right now. So in the minds of everybody in that camp would have been that script, that, that amazing act of God on their behalf. So think about this. Flanking the story on both sides is God's kindness, right? He's just given them, over to, uh, uh, given them their first major victory over their oppressors, the Canaanites, and they're on their way to the location of the single greatest picture of God's love for them in all of the Old Testament. That's, that's what's flanking this story. And in this space, 
flanked by these two massive expressions of God's kindness and love for them, that's where we get our story, and it's riddled with complaint and ingratitude. Right? Do you see the point? Their sin is serious because sin makes us blind to God's kindness. Sin makes us blind to God's kindness. It just doesn't. And in case you thought the writer was like done driving home his point about this, we're given this ridiculous transcript in verse five of what Israel says to Moses. And it's so absurd to me when I read it that it almost reads like a comedy. Like, look at verse five. Here's, here's what the people say. And, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Oh, I don't know. Because you were enslaved, right? Like, maybe that was why. Not, God, thank you for liberating us from our captors by those 10 supernatural plagues that only you could generate. No, it's... Gosh, I sure liked it there. Right? That's what they lead with. And then, and then the coup de grace. It, like, if you thought there wasn't humor in the Bible, just read this next sentence. This is what they say. For, so here's the reason why they're so upset. For, <clears throat> there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, I'm not a sentenceologist, but I know that sentence doesn't make any sense, right? Let's have a look, shall we? Part one, there is no food. Stay with me. Part two, we hate this food. <laughs> Which is it, right? Oh, okay, oh, I know what you mean. You mean that the food that God's been giving you, you know the food that comes down from the sky every morning that your God supplies to you for 40 years? That food, oh, you don't like that food. That's what you mean, right? You see how serpents start making a little more sense like when you see this? So, I, yeah, I can get down with that. This isn't just a moment of ingratitude. This is willful blindness to the kindness of God, and it offends him. It offends him. You should feel that when you're reading this. Sin makes us blind to God's kindness. It makes us blind. Just, just think about your own life for a moment. Think of, just think of the 10 million ways that God has expressed his kindness to you in your life. The ways he's taken care of you, the ways he's rescued from things, spared you from things, given you things, given you opportunities. Think about all of those things. I, I find it fascinating. that this, this past Friday was Black Friday. And it, it strikes me as so bizarre that the day that follows a day called Thanksgiving is a day that exists to make you forget everything you're thankful for and just want everything else you don't have, right? That's, that's what Black Friday is all about. And if you're like me, you are so much faster to dwell on everything you lack or think you lack than you are to remember the kindness of God to you. Is anybody else like that? I am like that. Man, you catch me on any given day, I'm just so quick to like 
see what they have or what he's up to or what I lack. And I forget that for 34 years, my God has walked with me and taken care of me and carried me and rescued me. We are, we are deliberately and willfully blind people apart from Christ. And it offends God. Sin makes us blind to God's kindness. But we see something else here. Sin isn't just blind. We also see that sin is natural. Now, what does that mean when I say that? Well, let's remember something about this scene. Their, uh, their attitude here is not some strange anomaly in the life of Israel, right? It's not like this weird moment that happened, but otherwise they're like pretty sweet people. This is like every Wednesday for them. You understand? Like, like there are at least 10 other times before we get to Numbers 21 where this exact scenario goes down. God pours out his kindness on the people of Israel and then immediately they start grumbling. You remember the Passover, right? The, the kill the lamb, the, put the blood of the lamb on the door. Death passes over. They're freed from Egypt. They're walking toward the Red Sea and they glance back. They see Pharaoh. What's the next thing it says they do? They start grumbling, complaining. This should have never happened, right? Then God parts the sea. They walk through the sea on dry ground only for the sea to collapse on their enemies. They're victorious. They're free. They're on the other side. The, I'm not even, I had to look it up. The next verse in Exodus 16, the next verse, they show up at this place where the water's not great, and they're like, I'm so thirsty. God is awful. I hate Moses. That, that's all these people do. It's pathological. They are repeat offenders. Now, there is a reason they can't shake this habit. There's a reason for it. And I think it's implied in what we're going to see in verses 4 and 5, so look at it. Verse four again, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Okay, so their sin presents itself as a behavior, right? It presents as a behavior, blaspheming God, slandering Moses, but did you see in the text it didn't start as a behavior? How did it start? It started as a state of being. The people became impatient on the way. Now that phrase, became impatient, are these two Hebrew words, when put together, they literally translate as this, their soul was short. Isn't that interesting? Their soul was short. Or to say it another way, their sin started in their soul. It started in their soul. Their soul was short. My, my, um, my mentor in high school explained it to me uh, this way. He said, Jimmy, we're not liars because we lie. We lie because we're liars. You see that? That's a little artsy way of putting it, but, but do you see what he's saying? He's, he's saying that Israel wasn't just having like this fluke relapse into ingratitude, but, but they're otherwise sweet people. He's saying they were acting in accordance with their nature that it was natural to them. Listen to this. Apart from Jesus, sin is not just what you do. It is who you are. It's, it's who you are. It is your DNA. You are not a sinner because you sin. If you've thought that way, stop. It's not biblical. You sin 
because you're a sinner. Because you're a sinner. And look, this is a, it's a tough pill for us to swallow. It feels offensive, but it's, it's true. And listen, some of you are here today, and, and maybe you're not even a, a, a Christian, and you're here. And, and I, I just want to say this to you. If, you. if you've been wondering why you can't just shake off some of those nasty tendencies and bad habits and attitudes, why those don't just, you can't labor through them and get rid of them, can I tell you, it's because your problem is deeper than just the activities of your hands or the words of your mouth. It's deeper than that. You have a problem that starts in your heart. It's a nature problem. It's a soul problem. It's a heart problem. Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ephesians 2, 3. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin is natural. Do you see that? It's natural. If it's helpful to think of it like this, um, sin is less like a cough and more like the flu. Do you know what I mean? But like, a cough is something your body does occasionally, right? I coughed, right? But the flu is a disruption of your whole internal system Right? And, and a lot of people, when we think about our sin, we think about it like a cough. Oh, I've been coughing a lot today. I, oh, I haven't, I haven't been coughing as much lately. I might be doing better. Right? But the Bible wants us to see, no, actually, it's a lot more like the flu. So that whether I'm coughing a lot today or not, whether I'm sniffling a lot or I'm, I'm not, that there's something present inside me that needs to be dealt with. You see that? And it really matters that you believe this. It, because if sin is just something I do like on occasion, like a cough, right? Then it's easy for me to see God's justice as being over the top or unnecessary, right? If it's just this occasional thing I do, then why is he reacting so harshly? But if we see our sin like the flu and it's systemic in me, that, that I actually, at the very core of who I am, prefer these things, that at my deepest center, there is a bent in me towards selfishness and greed and jealousy and laziness and anger and lust and pride, then things start to become clearer. Then I can begin to understand God's response to my sin. And what is the response God gives to sin? The answer we see in the text is judgment. It's judgment. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So here is the consequence for Israel's repeated, willfully blind, blasphemous, slanderous, true to their nature, grumbling. Their sin gets the death penalty, doesn't it? And let us be careful that we don't accuse God of being unfair here. Because all sin always gets the death penalty. All sin always 
gets the death penalty. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. Hear this, when, when we take the time to slow down and understand things, we begin to see, hey, this passage we thought was super weird is actually not as weird as we thought. There's actually nothing strange about this moment. There's something tragic about this moment, but there's not something strange about it. This is the story, guys, of every human being apart from Christ that has ever lived or ever will live. This is the fate of everyone without Jesus. The only thing that's strange in this story is coming in a few minutes, but in this moment, God pronounces judgments, sends serpents to kill, and they kill. And finally, Israel responds in verse 7. Look what it says. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the people seem to be softening, right? They repent and then they make a request of Moses. And what, what's the request? The request is Moses, pray that the Lord take away the serpents from us. They want God to remove the judgment. Now this is what's fascinating. What happens next is one of the best explanations of Christianity in your whole Bible, and it happens over a thousand years before Jesus is ever born. Listen to God's response. Verse eight. And the Lord said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Super weird, I'll grant you. But my question is this, does God remove his judgment from the people? Think, think about it, what, what we just read. Did, did God remove the judgment from them? You can answer. No, he didn't. He didn't remove the judgment from them. Right? Did, did God take away the snakes like the people asked? That was the prayer. Moses asked God to take away the serpents from us. Did he do that? He didn't, he didn't do that. No, he didn't. Why? Here is my best answer for why. Because God wants you to know something about the nature of his judgment. His judgment is permanent. Does that feel confusing? It might. But let me explain. His judgment is permanent and it's so important to see this. It, this will make sense to you if you've ever taken like an economics class in like high school. If you ever, ever did that, you probably came across a term, uh, no free lunch. You've heard that term before. What, is, what does no free lunch mean? No free lunch in economic terms means if you ever experience something as being free, you can know uh, that it's not really free because someone paid for it, right? Uh, about a year ago, I went to uh, a restaurant with Kelly and actually you two. And uh, we went out to eat at a restaurant in Trinity Groves called Beto and Son. Anybody been to Beto and Son? It changed your life. Yes. Yes. Amen. Uh, so we, we show up and we sit down and we're about to order. And all of a sudden, Beto and Son come out of the kitchen and they stand on the table and they say to the entire restaurant, hey, we just want to let you know everything you order tonight is on the house. Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you, we ordered an easy $200 worth of food after that. Right? He should have told me after I ordered, but he didn't, so I got a lot. 
It was fantastic. But here's the thing. What did that mean when he said that? Did it mean that our meal was free? No, it didn't mean our, my meal wasn't free that night, right? It was free for me, but it wasn't free for Beto. Beto had a tab that night. That's what on the house means. If it's on the house, it means it's not charged to you. It's charged to the house. Our tab would be picked up by the restaurant. So nobody that night actually got a truly free meal. We might not have paid, but Beto definitely paid. And in the same way, one of the realities God teaches us is that the judgment he owes us for our sin is actually, listen, never revoked. It's weird, right? It's never, it's, it's permanent. It is fixed. It is irrevocable. In God's economy, the bill always has to be paid. It always has to be paid. Otherwise, what? He wouldn't be just, right? We talk about this a lot up here, but it's because it's so important. God cannot be both just and good and wink at your sin. He can't do it. He can't overlook your sin and also still be rightly called righteous and good. He would be a bad judge. So it would have actually damaged God's credibility for him to just snap his fingers and zap up all the serpents, right? The judgment still stands. Listen, God will never, ever, ever overlook your sin. No matter how sorry you feel, I just want you to sit in that for just a moment. That is what the scriptures teach. He does not remove his judgment, but he can transfer it. He can transfer it. Verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. What is happening here? God commands Moses to do what? To make a representative that would be a stand-in, a picture of the judgment they were facing, those serpents, and to place that representative on a pole and raise it high in the air for all to see. And anyone who experiences the judgment and wants freedom need only look at the representative and live. Does that sound familiar to you? Easily, the most famous verse in the Bible, what? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But I wonder how many of us know the, the two preceding verses before that verse shows up. Because it's the reason I picked this text today. Verse 14 and 15, listen to what Jesus says before he says the most famous verse in the Bible. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the moment that Numbers 21 was a dress rehearsal for. Why? Why this weird event in Numbers, 
right? And why, and why didn't God remove his judgment? And, and why did he have them make this representative of this thing that was killing them? Why do all that? Because God was preparing their hearts. And he was preparing your hearts for a moment that he was moving all of human history toward. This moment where God would send his own representative, right? Someone who would not just be a picture of God's judgment on sin, but would actually experience God's judgment for sin. God will not remove the judgment, but he will transfer it to his very son. That's what he'll do. Galatians 3.13 puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Do you see the bronze serpent? Christ becoming the curse for us? It's the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's judgment is permanent, but in his kindness, he is willing to transfer that judgment, that curse to his son instead of you. That's what Numbers 21 is about. You see, that's what it's about. And now really only one question remains, and it's this. How do we get in on that? If this doesn't strike you as the greatest news in the world, you're crazy. This is everything. The question is, how do we get that? How do I get in on, if you're, if you're a Christian right now, please don't check out like, oh, this is the part where he tells us about Jesus and trusting in Jesus. Please don't check out. I can't tell you how many people I meet that love to call themselves Christians, but in their life they display none of what I'm about to say. It is entirely possible for you to even know the answer you're about to hear and not live it. So don't miss it. Christian, listen. Everyone, listen. Verse nine. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, there's the judgment, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now there's just one word I want you to see in that. One word that purchases for anyone the anti-venom that will free you from the sting of judgment. One word, and it's the word look. Look. When I read this, I, I almost feel embarrassed about how simple God has made escape for sinners like us. You could have picked any analogy you could have painted any picture and you painted a picture where the operative word is look. What is look? You're, you're all doing it right now and you're not even telling yourselves to, right? Look, look at, at what, at where? Look to the curse bearer. Look to the one who took on all the wrath of God for you. Look to him. And be saved. 
It's interesting to me. Jesus actually gives us a little commentary on this word because when he quotes this passage in the New Testament in John 3, like we just read, he actually takes that word and he replaces it with another word and it gives us some really helpful insight. Let's look at it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is Jesus talking, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever, it's supposed to say look, but what does it say? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What's he doing? He's teaching us what the essence of faith is. Have you ever wondered, what, what is this? What's at the heart of Christianity? What's the essence of faith, of belief? What is it? The answer is this, looking, gazing, beholding, seeing. Looking is at the heart of faith. It's, it's not some hyper-complicated, super-intellectual thing that only like the, the brightest of the bright with like insider knowledge can get. It's something that a kid can do. Look, that's why he chose that word, look. Look and be saved. It's easy to say, it's even easy for you to understand, you know what I'm saying right now, but isn't it just, if we're honest, it's just like the hardest thing in the world to do, right? Like, if we're real, it's it's hard to do. Why? Because I don't like looking when it comes to my salvation. You know what I like? I like working. I love that. I love getting behind the wheel and steering myself up into heaven, y'all. That's what I like doing. I told you a story um, a little while ago of uh, a college student that that, uh, goes here that um, I had the privilege of leading to Christ uh, about a year ago. And he came out of a Mormon context. And I sat down with him over coffee as we were getting to know each other. And I just asked him this story. I asked him what drew him to Mormonism. You know what he said? I'll never forget. It was so fascinating. The main thing he said drew him to Mormonism was this. He said, at least it gave me something to do. Isn't that honest? He's just like, I, I needed a religion that was going to let me get behind the wheel. And it did that for me. And man, don't, if we're honest, don't we love that? I love getting to be in control. And you know what, what the, really the essence of religion is? If you understand it in those terms, it's this. Religion says, God, you look to me so I might be saved. That's what religion is. R- religion is, I'm doing things over here. And I just need you to get your eyes on me, approve this thing, and let me in. But that's not the gospel. Church, that's not the gospel. If you don't know what it is, here's the gospel. The gospel is not, you look to me, God. The gospel is God saying, you look to me so that you might be saved. That's the gospel, looking to Jesus, not having Jesus look to you, not getting behind the steering wheel, not doing it yourself. It is having your eyes fixed up on the one who accomplished everything on your behalf. I'm hoping right now that this frees some people up today. We've been praying that this would free you up today. Because I, I know there are folks in this room, maybe you don't know the Lord and you know you don't know the Lord, but, but you do know you're not okay. And no matter what you do, nothing's changing. You still feel this sense of guilt and condemnation and you want it to lift and maybe that's why you're in this room this morning. Can I tell you, it couldn't be any simpler than what Jesus is inviting you to do right now. He's just saying, turn your eyes up to me. 
you, you're right, you can't do it. You're bad at it, but I'm great at it and I've done it on your behalf. I lived the life you couldn't and then I was the curse bearer for you. If you look to me, that burden of guilt lifts. Maybe you're a Christian in the room. I, I was like this for so many years. In fact, this morning I woke up feeling these things of just like, I, I know the truth. I know what he's done, but I just feel so heavy with guilt and shame. The invitation's the same. Do you feel that, Christian, in this room where you're just like, I just, I'm a mess even though I, I've, I've been walking with God for a long time. The anti-venom's the same. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author of your faith. He's done the work for you. He wants to change you. If you're looking to yourself, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're making God look to you, you're demanding the wrong thing of God. You need to look to Christ. I pray that God will do for you what he did to Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you know Charles Spurgeon's story. Spurgeon uh, was uh, called the Prince of Preachers. He was a preacher in the 1800s in uh, London, England, a remarkable man. And when he was a young man and a teenager, he was a mess. He knew about Christianity. He even wanted to be a Christian, but he was so radically committed to this idea that I've got to do something. And he, could, and he never knew what it was. He needed to get behind the wheel, he felt. And one day it was winter time and there was a big snowstorm. The school let out. He was on his way uh, to a church actually, but the blizzard was so bad that it forced him down an alleyway that he wasn't actually planning on turning on. And he went down the alleyway, alleyway and he found what he called a primitive Methodist church, about 15 people in, in the room. He sits down in that congregation and he, and he waits. And uh, the snowstorm's so bad that, that nobody actually shows up. Uh, the, the pastor never comes. And eventually, this old man in the congregation, one of the 15, comes forward. He says he's probably a, a tinker or a tailor, something like that. He gets behind the pulpit. And this guy, Spurgeon, makes it really clear. He doesn't know what he's doing. He actually calls him stupid in his autobiography. He's like, he, he doesn't know. This guy's a wreck. But he opens up the Bible. He turns to Isaiah. And he reads the passage that he's going to be preaching from. And the passage says this. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon says this. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just, Look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of bloods. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, 
he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my whole heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been so accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck home. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting, listen, to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. The only thing that you're being called today to do, if you feel weak in here, if you feel foolish in here, if you feel burdened with guilt or shame in here, the only thing that you're being invited to do today and ever is to Look at him. Look at Christ. Don't demand Christ look at you. You look to him. Don't keep looking inside yourself as if you're going to find some reservoir of goodness. You look to him. He is my righteousness. He is my curse bearer. Wouldn't it be so awesome if we could all feel just the weight that so many of us carry around lifted today and we realize that it's bound up in the simplest word he could give us for what faith is. Just looking. Will you look to him today? If, you, if you've known him your whole life or if you come today and you just, you don't even know why you're here, turn and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I am so confident that this truth, this word is for someone here today. Hopefully many people. And God, I'm praying that your spirit would apply this word to the, their hearts. And I want to give you a moment. If you're hearing this and you, you've known Jesus for a long time, but you just, you've complicated the matter.
and, and, you, and you, you stopped looking to him that you would turn your eyes to Jesus right now? Maybe even take a moment where you're at and, and investigate your heart and see where, where you're looking to yourself and not to Christ. Repent of that. It's not gonna help you. You need someone else to bear your judgment. Turn to Christ. And if you've never trusted in him, you've always just done your own thing and, and tried to make sense of your own life and you've tried to look within yourself, today is the day of salvation. Please don't squander this moment. Look to him. Jesus stands ready to save you. He is like that bronze serpent for you. He is the picture of the curse on your behalf. Will you gaze? Stop looking at yourself. Look to him. Trust him. And man, if that is you, if you have trusted in Jesus, maybe for the first time today, and you're just done looking inside yourself, if you trusted in him, I'd love to know that. If you just look up here at me and maybe put your hand in the air. I'd love to just be able to put eyes on you and be able to celebrate with you. Nobody's going to shame you or embarrass you. We just want to, I just want to know um, if you look today. So if that's you, just keep your hand in the air if that's you. He saved you. And if that's, uh, if that's you, but you maybe even haven't raised your hand, that's okay. We're going to be down at the front. Um, the, uh, the, some of the elders and the prayer team, and we want to celebrate with you. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you, give you some next steps. If, if that is you and you want to talk with someone, please come down to the front. Let that be your first act of faith, coming down and, and talking with us after the service is over. We'll be down here. Lord, we exalt in you, and we just, we just want to say thank you for making it simple. That... that professors and children could treasure you the same. God, what a, what a gift. Lord, as we sing to you, may the, may the eyes of our heart lock on Christ and may, may he be our boast today. Him and only him forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.